Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is June 12th, 2023, and I'm delighted to be here today with two brilliant colleagues from the European Legal Support Center, ELSC. Uh, ELSC last week published a groundbreaking report entitled Suppressing Palestinian Rights Advocacy Through the IHRA Working Definition of Antisemitism, Violating the Rights to Freedom of Expression and Assembly in the European Union and the UK. So we're going to be talking about that report, but before we do that, let me just very quickly introduce the organization and my guests today. First, for people who don't know, ELSC uh, is the first and only independent organization defending and empowering the Palestine solidarity movement in Europe through legal means. ELSC provides legal uh, advice for free and assistance to associations, human rights NGOs, groups and individuals advocating for Palestinian rights in mainland Europe and the United Kingdom. And it intervenes to end arbitrary restrictions and criminalization of peaceful advocacy, advocacy and humanitarian work. And we'll hear about why that is increasingly important and it develops legal tools and engages in strategic litigation to support civil society advocacy and campaigns. And you can check them out online at uh, elsc.support, and you can follow them on Twitter at, at ELSC Legal. I encourage you to do that. All these links will be, of course, in the show notes. So uh, to introduce my guests, I am honored to have with me today, first, Giovanni Fassini, Giovanni is the director of ELSC. He is an expert in international law and has worked for many years in the occupied Palestinian territory in the development sector. So welcome, Giovanni. Um, and I'm sorry, I should have let you say hello. Do you want to say hello? Hi, hi, uh, hi, Lara. Thank you. So the problem of being on that. mute, it's hard to like... Yeah, no, no. Quick, <laughs> unmute yourself. Uh, thank you, Giovanni. And we also have Alice Garcia, Alice manages communication and advocacy strategies and campaigns at ELSC, and she has been working in advocacy related to Israel-Palestine since 2015. So welcome, Alice. Hi, Laura. Hi, everyone. And thank you for hosting us. And before I go any further, I do want to note that the Foundation for Middle East Peace is a very proud supporter of ELSC, as well as a consumer of the remarkable work that it does. So thank you for that. So... Getting back to the report, and we're going to dive into questions. Um, this new report on suppressing Palestinian rights through the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, uh, rights advocacy, I should say. This report is the first case-based account of human rights violations um, resulting from the institutionalization and application, or as I say, weaponization, of the controversial IHRA definition, which you'll hear me referring to as IRA, um, by the EU and the UK. And there'll also be a link to that report in the show notes. So let's dig right in. And I'm going to start with you, Giovanni. So we have, we being the Foundation for Release Peace, have done a lot of webinars and podcasts focus on the working definition of anti-Semitism that was adopted and is being promoted by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, or as most people call it, the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, or as I say, IRA. Our most recent podcast was just last week, uh, focused on the Biden's anti-Semitism strategy, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. I recommend people look at that podcast. There'll be a link to that again. But for folks who haven't been following the IRA controversy, can you just start us off by briefly reviewing the basics? What is this definition? How did it come about? And what is so problematic about it? 
Yeah, thank you, Lara. Well, well to, I'm going to keep it very brief, but basically the ISRA is de facto the result of a concerted effort uh, underway since a few decades by individuals and organizations to redefine anti-Semitism in a way that deflects and silences criticism of Israeli government for its human rights violation and the repression against the Palestinians. Uh, this, of course, ha is happening in a context of growing solidarity with the struggle of Palestinian liberation and human rights. Uh, <clears throat> so, indeed, this redefinition aims specifically to shield Israel uh, from scrutiny and criticism for its human rights violation. So, this reconceptualization of antisemitism has come to be known as new antisemitism and has been heavily documented by uh, scholars, including Anthony Lerman. Uh, who, uh, former head of the World Jewish Congress Institute of Jewish Affairs, who in his book, uh, Whatever Happened to Antisemitism, explains brilliantly uh, how this definition uh, evolved and how it has been, uh, uh, and, and basically explained the development of this definition. Um, so the definition is just, you know, just a simple definition, but the most the major problem are actually the examples because there is a general definition about antisemitism and there are 11 examples that uh, uh, showcase uh, uh, the practical example of antisemitism. Uh, these examples are very problematic uh, because one of these examples says denying the Jewish people the right to self-determination by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. Another problematic example is example number eight where we say applying double standards by requiring of Israel a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. Uh, have, so in theory, this context uh, should be read into context before uh, uh, judging a specific statement or conduct as anti-Semitic. However, uh, as we have been observing in practice, these examples are used and broadly interpreted to indeed conflate criticism with Israel with anti-Jewish prejudice. Uh, for instance, uh, the article, the example seven about uh, denying Jewish people right of self-determination is constantly used to repress the assertion that the Israeli government commits the crime of apartheid against Palestinians, which is based on factual findings and documentation of expert lawyers and uh, uh, Palestinian Israeli international human rights organization. Um, so what we did notice is that these examples are really used to stifle criticism and to stigmatize, I would say, anyone who is speaking out about uh, Palestinian human rights. And that, that's it very, very briefly. That, that's a great summary. And I mean, we've talked about this a lot in our previous webinars. I think it's really important to hear from you guys, because I think a lot of our listeners were obviously operating in English. Think about it. This is something that's happening in the U.S., the fight about it in the U.S. over, you know, legislating the IRA definition or whether it's in the Biden plan, whereas actually the, the main the, there's been a much more um, energetic effort to impose it and weaponize it in Europe. So I think this is a really important reminder for people that, you know, the impacts of this are not just um, on the English speaking world or just on the US. Um, so listen, Alice, I want to come to you. So ELSC and others in Europe have been raising concerns about IRA and its implementation in Europe for quite a while. Um, I think I learned a lot about the IRA battle really first from my European colleagues who, you know, it's a little bit of canary in the coal mine. Um, can you talk about how relevant EU governing bodies, most notably the EU Commission, have dealt with concerns that you and others have raised and, and, and concerns from scholars and civil society groups um, about the harms being done by this definition? 
Yes, sure. That's a very important issue that we raise in the report, because despite a huge number of, of criticism by civil society organizations, Jewish organizations or scholars, lawyers, uh, the EU, and especially the, the European Commission, has consistently chosen to ignore this concern and still today continues to endorse the definition and implement it uh, through its policies. And there are like many problematic components of, of that behavior, because first, we have to remind that the problematic examples that Giovanni just mentioned were never formally adopted by uh, the IRA itself, like the, the governmental, intergovernmental uh, organization that is IRA, uh, but they are now being treated by institutions, including the European Commission, as if they were part of the definition. And by the way, Dr. Uh, Jamie Stan Weiner has extensively uh, written about this. Um, and the EU Commission itself has made clear uh, uh, recently in January in the, in the reply to a parliamentary question that uh, the example are included under uh, the definition, actually. So this is one uh, problematic thing. Then uh, we, as the LSE and with other civil society partners, we have met with the Commission, we have sent legal analysis uh, and letters. We have also sent uh, official submissions uh, along with scholars and other NGOs during this big consultation that the EU uh, Commission opened um, before publishing the strategy to combat anti-Semitism. This was back in 2021. Uh, dozens of submissions were made, uh, but they were never taken into consideration. And the EU always, you know, repeated the same arguments to us saying that the IRA definition is good for the affected communities, it does not violate free speech, and that's supposedly because it would, it's not legally binding. Um, so yeah, there is for us, there is a big scandal here, which is the, the, the non-response of the European Commission. They completely dismissed uh, uh, our various concerns. They also excluded progressive Jewish groups uh, such as EJJP, uh, this stands for European Jews for Justice in Palestine, from uh, this working group on anti-Semitism that was established by the European Commission back in 2019 to also prepare this, this strategy. Um, and yeah, we have to say also that uh, the coordinator against uh, anti-Semitism for the European Commission, who is uh, uh, Katarina von Schnurbein, also played an important role uh, uh, in this. And yeah, she has consistently affirmed that the definition is not harming human rights and uh, that uh, the assessment of that has been made actually. But if we look closer into the European Commission's files and, and actually there, were, um, there was a freedom of information request that was filed uh, end of last year to ask about this assessment uh, uh, on, into the human rights implications of the IHR definition basically. Uh, and the European Commission uh, replied that there was no, never any assessments uh, done. So, yeah, and at the same time, so on one side that there is this, you know, denial and ignorance, and at the same time, the European Commission keeps arguing that since the definition is not legally binding, it has no legal effect, and therefore does not violate free speech. It's like really the mantra. Um, but again, uh, we we explained in the report, and we want to reaffirm that a tool doesn't need to be codified in law to have concrete effects on fundamental rights. Um, and the evidence in the report shows it uh, very well because from the moment that you know, the IHRA definition has been incorporated into policies such as strategies, motions, whatever 
you know, like to live and if it's considered a, a, as non-legally binding, from the moment it is incorporated as such and treated as authoritative by the relevant institutions, we have, which are the highest uh, 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 institutions, whether at state level or regional level or whatever, uh, then it has a de facto a binding effect on individuals' rights. So, yeah. Yeah, so I just want to note, so Giovanni mentioned Anthony Lerman, you mentioned Jamie Sternweiner. These are people who are part of a chorus of voices that have very publicly and emphatically challenged this notion that, that there is consensus around the IRA definition, which is something that we hear a lot in the US when this comes up. I will include in the show notes uh, the database that I maintain of the expert views that are challenging the IRA definition. And if you have others that you want me to include in that list, please, please do send them. But this seems to be just a basic, you know, a core element of the arguments around IRA is it doesn't hurt anybody because it's not binding, which is clearly what your report is about and showing not the case, and it's consensus, so anyone who is disagreeing with it is marginal when that is manifestly not the case as, as we've seen. Um, so Giovanni, I wanna dig more into the report. So, and I gotta say the report is amazing. People should read it. They need, they need need People need to know this, right? It's a lot, when it's just a matter of opinion, yes, it bothers, yes, it harms people, no, it doesn't harm people. You know, that's not, that's not a really, um, that's not an informed argument and an informed debate about this should at least be informed by fact. Right. So I, I encourage people to download it and, and read it. Um, but first, can you talk about the genesis and the methodology of the report? How does documenting evidence proving the harm done by IRA fit in with your work defending and empowering the Palestine solidarity movement in Europe? Yeah, well, basically, our work is focused on three pillars, which are monitor, defend, and empower. And the monitoring is 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 one of a uh, uh, big chunk of work we do. So we document and analyze incidents of repression targeting individuals in Europe. Uh, so this means that uh, a lot of people in organization weekly uh, uh, um, through our website uh, they report incidents to us. So this is how we got to know most of the incidents that are reported in uh, in our report. So the report is based on a portion of these documented incidents uh, and uh, um, so for each incident, uh, for for some incidents, uh, we just we we double checked with uh, with our with our clients in a sense that we asked them to send us uh, documents. We carried out interviews, um, and and for some incidents there was nothing we could do. Like incidents really took place maybe a long time ago, so we just made sure we had the facts straight, uh, and we and and everything was double checked. With many uh, with many others, uh, were cases where we were directly involved. Like people came to us after they were censored due to the implementation of the IHRA definition, and we provided them uh, legal uh, legal support. And I must say also that the positive note is that uh, in almost uh, all these cases, we were successful. So we always managed to push back. So again, I, I would say is, is yeah, the cases are, are the outcome of this kind of trust that the people in the movement has with us. And that's why we keep reporting these incidents. And it's really important because we always say that, uh, you know, it's important that people keep speaking out when these kind of incidents take place uh, because, uh, yeah, the silencing effect is exactly what we want to, to, to avoid. 
Yeah, I, I think it's interesting also because when we talk about methodology for research, I think most people think of researchers coming in and trying to learn about something they don't already have the data on. This effectively, your methodology is going through your own data because you are directly engaged with these cases. So you have your own deep knowledge, you've done your own checking, you already you already know these cases very well, which is a different kind, it's a different level I think of understanding of what's going on and what the implications are, which again, it's it's a really very compelling report. I, I hope people will read it. Um, yeah, no, just, just thought of that because indeed, like to be honest with you, we wanted to spend more and more time for us providing legal support. That's our the core of our mandate. But at one point we realized there was no one else doing this kind of work, any kind of academic institution whatsoever doing this. And so we thought, well. <laughs> I guess we need to do it because otherwise we're missing an important piece of a puzzle. We cannot show this pattern. And that's why we end up uh, doing this as well. Absolutely. And that, and that really does come through in the report. Alice, uh, above and beyond shining this bright light on how IRA is being weaponized, and I do use the word weaponized, to suppress Palestinian rights advocacy in Europe and in the UK, what do you hope to achieve with this report? And we're going to get into the report in a second. We'll get into the details more. But you know, how do you see this report being used, for example, to help Palestinian rights activists push back against unfounded allegations of anti-Semitism, or even, you know, to further um, challenge the adoption implementation of IRA more broadly. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, first, we, of course, we want to rebut the European Commission's argument, uh, you know, that uh, I've told you before, and, and provide evidence that the IHR definition curtails freedom of expression and freedom of assembly, that it leads to self-censorship and fosters anti-Palestinian racism. Um, then, of course, expose the ignorance and, and denial uh, by the European by the European Commission, sorry, of um, of concerns uh, from civil society about the definition and and its implementation, with the example as um, as EU policy. And and I mean, what basically what we want to say is what we want to show and and expose is that the EU has been failing in its core mission, that is to protect fundamental rights despite the many warnings. Uh, um, and now it has to acknowledge the negative impact of, of uh, the IRA definition on, on human rights and react accordingly. So for us, the only way would be that the European Commission and, and all institutions in the EU and the UK uh, uh, revoke their endorsement and implementation of, uh, of IRA. Um, then of course, as you said, we hope uh, that the report can be used as a tool uh, to push back against further unfounded uh, allegations using the IHRA definition, uh, whether it is in universities and private uh, uh, sector or, or, or other um, uh, contexts, and also uh, as a tool to advocate against further uh, adoption or implementation or endorsement, or whatever term we use uh, of the IHRA definition, um, because yeah, we think that presenting evidence of how uh, the IRA definition has been uh, instrumentalized or weaponized or used uh, at the expense of uh, fundamental rights can be an effective way to, uh, you know, to warm, or, or to warn, sorry, not warm, um, authorities in other contexts too, not only uh, in Europe, because we, we will talk about this later probably, but it, it, it's also being weaponized in the US and, and other contexts. So. Um, and it's also particularly important uh, now because the UN is also preparing uh, uh, an action plan to combat, combat anti-Semitism. Maybe we'll also get back to that. 
but yeah, many institutions haven't trapped themselves yet in endorsing and implement, uh, implementing IRA. So we hope this can bring uh, um, yeah, a useful tool in, in the debates. Uh, and then, of course, if we if institutions happen on IRA, it doesn't mean that it's the end of anti-Palestinian racism, unfortunately, but we really hope that it will make it you know, more difficult for anti-Palestinian groups to, to purport their uh, allegations of anti-Semitism, basically. And many, you know, like uh, for the sanctions, dismissals, and, and other terrible consequences that we describe in the report could be uh, avoided in the future. Yeah. I'll, I'll add, I mean, as somebody who talks um, with people about IRA a lot, including with Catherine von Schurman a while ago, um, you know, the, you always get the pushback, which says, well, you know, prove it when you say, you know, this is the danger of IRA. And the irony is that those of us who who follow these things closely and worry about these things have said from, from the very beginning, I had colleagues worrying from 2016 when it was the working definition adopted by the State Department. They said, this is laying the groundwork for anti-Palestinian racism, for quashing free speech. And it's sort of treated as, well, you're being hyperbolic, you're being paranoid, you're, you're whatever. And then when it starts happening, people are like, well, show me the examples, prove it. Um, and, and this report adds to what is, I think, a growing body of research. There's also a great report by Independent Jewish Voices in Canada that came out last year. It, 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 answering the question, you know, well, show me an example of this happening. The answer is, well, here you go. So Giovanni, I actually want to dig into some examples. I want you to, for our, for our listeners and our viewers, um, probably most of whom haven't read the report yet, I hope. Um, can, you, can you talk about some of maybe the most um, striking examples? And I'm, I'm particularly here thinking about Germany and, and the idea of what, what, how this translates into broad anti-Palestinian racism as a policy. Yeah. Can you go yeah. talk about that? Yeah, there are different, okay, I'm going to cover, I think, two or three examples, which also shows different ways on how VIHRA is used, because somehow VIHRA is used by private organizations, sometimes by public bodies, sometimes VIHRA used by pro-Israeli advocate, uh, advocates uh, as a tool for legitimize their acquisition of anti-Semitism. So let's start with the first one. Um, this is a really compelling case that happened in Germany uh, with RIAS. RIAS is an organization monitoring anti-Semitism incidents in Germany. It's an organization also that uh, uh, gets a lot of funds from European Union for writing a handbook on how to use the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. So I would say they are that, yeah, the perfect example because the European Union uses them as a model on how the IHRA should be used. And it's a private organization who is privately funded. Well, uh, this organization uses the IHRA for monitoring anti-Semitism. Uh, well, in, we have one case with Dr. Anna Younes. Anna Younes is a German-Palestinian scholar who was invited from uh, the DLINK, from Katrina, um, from Katrina, uh, I don't recall the name. Anyway, she was invited from DLINK to give a uh, talk in a panel about anti-racism. And last minute, she was disinvited. And afterwards, she found out that she was disinvited because Arias, this organization, cr made created a secret dossier on her. So the secret dossier basically was they were tracking down her social media post, her academic publications, and the dossier was framing her as an anti-Semite, basically as an a terrorist sympathizer. And they framed her in, the, in this way because the IHRA give her mandate to do it because they said, well, we use this definition according to this, de this definition, we can easily uh, 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 um, uh, gather information about you. Uh, and this case is, is extremely compelling because it shows also as 
a private organization can basically surveil advocates of Palestinian rights with excuse of monitoring anti-Semitism, because nothing that uh, Anna wrote or published, of course, was, was, was anti-Semitic at all. We're talking about academic publication. She wrote an article about the women movement within Hamas, nothing else, you know? Uh, so this was very concerning. Uh, and by the way, uh, Anna, you, uh, through our support, uh, she, uh, she brought a lawsuit against Arias and she won. And uh, now there is the appeal, so the case is ongoing. So this is the case with private how private organizations are, are using it. Then we have also public uh, organization. And again, we go back to Germany, where in 2022 and 2023, uh, the Berlin police banned any uh, demonstration for the celebration of the Nakba. And, uh, and, and in the decision where they were banning uh, the, the demonstrations, there were many, they, 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 they put forward many, many arguments. And, and one of them was, uh, well, uh, uh, um, it's clear that during this uh, demonstration, there are going to be uh, chants against Israel and chants that uh, push for the destruction of the state of Israel are clearly anti-Semitic, according to the IHRA definition, because Germany adopted the IHRA definition. So again, like this, we see a public body like the police using IHRA as a main term of reference for deciding what is anti-Semitism or not. And because of, of, of this, they banned all the demonstrations. Uh, and then another case, which was very compelling, which was in Austria, where um, the Palestinian scholar Wala al Kassia, uh, she was invited to give uh, uh, to speak in, 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 in a panel, and she was supposed to give a speak about uh, uh, Zionism, basically. Um, uh, and and uh, and the, uh, um, the union of Jewish students wrote to the organizer of this event, and they said uh, you cannot invite Walal Kazia because she's anti-Semitic according to the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. And the organizers uh, immediately after receiving this complaint, they didn't even question them. They didn't in, in, enter into any conversation with her. They just cancelled her speech. Uh, and again, this is an example on how privates actually use this, because as soon as you say it is anti-Semitic, then you are done, basically. <laughs> like there is a shifting of a burden of proof, uh, to, to say the least, because in this case, uh, she cannot even prove them wrong. She They just cancel her, uh, her, her speech. So these are, I would say, the three main ways on how 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 uh, it's used. I would say it's extremely problematic in Germany, where we haven't done a lot of research on this now, but it seems clear to us that they're now using IHRA for training police officers and the police. Uh, and, and, and this can be very, very problematic, uh, we think, in the, near, in the near future. Yeah, thanks. I mean, watching Germany, it almost appears at this point that there is the police, the security has adopted a policy that being Palestinian by nature implies an anti-Semitic outlook, which then gives a pretext for quashing free speech in advance by the assumption that any occasion will be an opportunity to express anti-Semitism. I mean, the idea that you're not gonna allow any sort of demonstration because there may be chants and those chants, we know if they're from a Palestinian perspective, we've defined it as anti-Semitic. It, it's quite an extraordinary, I mean, that's the anti-Palestinian racism part. Um, yeah. And, and just to add, because I forget, because it's good to speak to Germany and Austria, but also about what's happening in the UK, it's really, really concerning. Because in the UK, the vast majority of universities adopted the IHRA. And what we noticed there is that after university adopted the IHRA, uh, there were many complaints against academics or students who were extremely active on social media and on campuses uh, uh, for Palestinian rights. 
And they filed complaint against these, uh, uh, these people. And the complaints were, check, check the social media post. This social media post violate this example of the IHRA. These other social media posts violate this other example. And just this complaint trigger a disciplinary investigation. A full investigation that end up with a report, then end up with, with a disciplinary hearing. And, and thanks to our support and the support of our amazing network of lawyers, we managed to win all the cases. And so all the complaints were dismissed. But this lasted like eight, nine months. People were under huge stress, uh, I would say. In another example, we had a student who, who was offered a job from a public body who, uh, um, who adopted the IHRA. And after she received the, they received the, the job offer, uh, the uh, the employer uh, wrote uh, wrote them well. We checked your social media, and it seems to us that your social media post violates IHRA definition that we adopted. So we cannot offer you the job anymore. And again, like thanks to our lawyer, we there was a threat of legal action, and they eventually offer the uh, the job back. But this still again shows how also in the UK the, uh, the, the how in the UK the IHRA is enshrined in policies, and what very direct consequences of, of this on fundamental rights. Yeah, thank you, and and I'll I'll just say that it's obvious, but I mean, there's the cases that come up that you guys challenge, and then there's the chilling effect, which is harder to quantify. But you've got to think that. The, if if not the explicit goal of these efforts around IRA is to have a chilling effect as much as it is to have prosecution or take away the jobs of specific people, because fine, people see this happen to one person, you spend months and months defending yourself. The next person says, well, you know what, maybe I won't post solidarity for Palestinians. Maybe I won't go to that demonstration, which is the chilling effect. Um, Alice, I want to come back to something we talked about before, which is the the... Well, we talked, we referenced it a little bit, the audiences. You talk about the impact you want to have. Um, so how has the report been received so far? And, and specifically, and I'm going to come to you next, Giovanni, on the second group, but on this first group, can you talk about the reception by the community of Palestinian solidarity groups and their defenders, and by IRA definition advocates and their defenders in the EU and the UK? Sure, yeah. It looks like the, the report was much awaited in the community of, of Palestine solidarity groups and their allies, uh, including in Europe, because as Giovanni said before, there was never such a comprehensive document uh, uh, compiling evidence of human rights violations uh, caused by the use of uh, the definition uh, before that. And, and at the same time, we also exposed the bias in which the definition came into place in EU institutions and was uh, further institutionalized in Europe. So, yeah, several times, uh, you know, in the past years, advocates have come to us and asked about such evidence because they were facing dangerous uh, motions or bills in their parliament. Uh, or university or other structured, and they wanted to have, you know, this this kind of comprehensive document, basically, to advocate against the, the, the adoption of the definition. So um, that's why we feel now that uh, uh, we have filled a gap. Then, of course, it's more uh, our partners to to tell than than ourselves. Um, and yeah, I, I also just want to add that we were, of course, inspired by uh, uh, amazing individuals and, and organizations who, who worked on that before, including Palestine Legal uh, in the US. And, and yeah, I like mean, the, the report they, they published a couple of years ago, the Palestine exception, um, well, in 2015, actually, it's, it's been a while now, but it was really like a, a landmark report that we, we took a lot of inspiration from. 
Um, so thank, thanks to them. And um, yeah, as for the IRA definition advocates, honestly, so far we haven't seen uh, that of reactions, um, about from maybe a few groups or individuals on Twitter that we don't know. Uh, and it's really on the margins and basically they are trying to, to delegitimize our work, you know, but actually it's quite interesting that the ones marrying us the most now have been uh, EU officials themselves. So I don't know if you wanna yeah. uh, go on on that, Joanne. Yeah, yeah, That's what I, I wanna ask Giovanni about it. Jenny, yeah. talk to me about the, the yeah. EU officials and, and the sort of attack that you've seen. Yeah, I mean, this was, I don't know, a mix of, I mean, I'm going to try to keep it serious. Like, um, no, this was very interesting. Okay, let's say like, it was very interesting in a sense that we went to that meeting together with our colleagues of European Jewish Voice for Peace. And there was a representative of French organization, French Jewish organization, Swedish and Belgian organization. So the most compelling evidence was also from the Belgian organization who told them, well, we are like a Jewish group and we organize like uh, cultural events uh, and we have uh, uh, and our community, people within our community were coming to us telling us, well, we are afraid to say this or say that because, you know, according to HRA, we could be accused of anti-Semitism we don't want. So they told us how much they are harmed as, as, as Jewish people. Uh, and and then you know we presented uh, we presented the European Commission uh, like the evidence. We discussed the case. We just discussed with you. We said like look this case, look this other case. And then, like, they were a broken record. They kept repeating, but it's not legally binding. Ah, the context matters. That's what they keep telling us. The context matters. And we were like, okay, but look, in all these cases, they never took into account the context, and this has severe repercussions. So our impression was we were in complete denial. Uh, and, 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 and this was really, really problematic because, you know, they were in denial of our evidence, but we were also completely in denial of what our... The Jewish colleagues were, were 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 discussing, and then when we said, "Well, the case, the evidence is pretty compelling. It shows that this can be misused. It is constantly misused. So, are you willing to take a public stance when uh, or when uh, IHRA uh, uh, um, is used for harm of fundamental rights?" And then they said, well, but your report is about the national the implementation of IHRA at national level. This is not our competence. You know, we cannot police what states are doing. And of course, we 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 strongly disagree with that because they are the main responsible for pushing national governments and states to adopt the IHRA, and then they don't even take responsibility for that. Um, so yeah, that was 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 pretty pretty. I would say, yeah, uh, yeah, problematic, but but disappointing, extremely, extremely dis disappointing. And yet again, like I think, yeah, one uh, one of the member of uh, one of the person who was in this group published this tweet where where he apparently he exposed the, the flaws of our report, and 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 it's it was really really interesting because this, I mean this person published this tweet the day after, and in none of these tweets he never addressed even one of the cases we brought, none, like nothing. Which you can tell us a lot. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the yeah. show. So people can see for themselves so, what the criticism yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. So, so so far, no official criticism, and yeah, we will keep pushing. Uh, I would uh, I would say not only with the EU Commissioner on Semitism, but with other uh, EU Commissioner and MPs, uh, and we're gonna try to 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 bring uh, uh, yeah to bring this to their attention. Is the only thing we can uh, do, I think. 
Excellent. I mean, hearing you recount that, it, it feels very familiar to, to meetings that I know that I've had and other people have had with policymakers where there's, you know, they say, well, prove that something's, prove that it's being used this way. Okay, here's the evidence. And then it's just this like wall of a denial, like unwillingness to engage the evidence. It's a narrative that does not fit where they want to go. And where they want to go is we are going to support IRA and we're not willing to engage with any other narrative. And, and your facts don't matter. And it, it's it's kind of, um, it's really kind of surreal. I mean, in the in meetings I've had. Um, all right, so Alice, I wanna come back to you. We mentioned the Biden administration earlier um, that they recently adopted their anti-Semitism strategy. And just as a reminder to listeners, and there's right now this is being played out in real time in, in the public discourse in the US, where you have particularly the US, the US envoy for anti-Semitism, Deborah Lipstadt, who is, adamantly portraying IRA as being at the center of the Biden administration strategy. Um, as a reminder, the actual strategy doesn't say that. Um, and, and clearly this was a, a, a very hard fought text where every word was fought about. And the fact that she is distancing her public narrative from that text, I think suggests there was a, a disagreement. But you know, the Biden administration has been under the same pressure as European governments, maybe even more, to adopt. And what they did instead is they effectively laid out their own definition, which says nothing about, it looks nothing like the IRA definition. It doesn't include any of the controversial elements of the IRA definition. The language they used about IRA was past tense and passive. Uh, said the US government has embraced, which is accurate because the State Department embraced it. And that was for obviously State Department international uh, diplomacy policy use, um, that's years ago. And Trump embraced it in an executive order dealing with the education department, but that's it. So has embraced in the past tense. It doesn't mention the IRA examples at all when it mentioned IRA, mentions IRA. And it frames IRA as one of several quote unquote valuable definitions, um, and they're the strongest praise it gives to IRA saying it's the most prominent, which is not a value judgment. It's an accurate description because unlike other definitions, millions and millions of dollars and euros have been spent making it the most prominent. So it is the most prominent. So there you go. So with all of that as context, I mean, you're sitting in Europe, you watched, I'm sure the, the, the anti-Semitism strategy rolled out from the Biden administration. Can you talk about what you see as the parallels? in the US to what's happening with the IRA definition in, in Europe? And, and to what extent do you see the Biden administration's decision, at least in the written part, we'll see what happens in implementation, to actively refrain from, from embracing and advocating and adopting IRA as this is the sole focus of US policy? How, how can that have an impact on efforts to fight against weaponization of IRA in the EU and the UK? Yeah, that's very, I mean, what happened in the US with the strategy is very interesting. Uh, in our opinion, the, the fact that it does not center the IHR definition uh, or endorsing it officially is a really important signal. And, and it looks also like a major blow to, to pro-Israel advocacy groups that are pushing, uh, uh, have been pushing states and institutions to adopt, to adopt IRA. Um, so, yeah, as, as you said, they will still probably use uh, um, this mention of IRA and the strategy to weaponize the definition, probably, but still from our European perspective, we see it as, as um, uh, you know, like potentially reducing the risk of uh, weaponization because to us, the, there is a difference between, you know, for a govern, governing body to say, 
okay, this is our plan to combat antisemitism. We mentioned once that there is this IRA definition that we embraced, but there's also this alternative one uh, to take into consideration in one, on one hand. And on another side, you know, saying, okay, this is our strategy. This is a policy to combat antisemitism. And our central reference is the IHRA definition, understood as with the examples included. And in the EU strategy, this is this is what happens. Like the 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 the, the IRA definition is mentioned at least fifteen times. Uh, it appears in four official recommendations. So this gives binding effects uh, as we have documented, and it legitimizes even more uh, the, the attacks on Palestine uh, rights advocacy. So then. Of course, like the EU now is telling us, well, this is related to US context and our uh, European context, the IRA fits because we have consulted the communities again. Um, and, and again, this is not completely true. So we still hope that the US uh, example will be followed by others. And in this regard, again, we look at the UN plan um, and, and maybe at some point the EU will have to, to acknowledge that this uh, this strategy is not so consensual, uh, but so far it's not the case. And and, and yesterday, uh, um, uh, even the, the vice president of the European Commission, Skinas, was in Tel Aviv at the AJ, AGC uh, Global Forum, and he repeated that uh, the EU's work is firmly rooted in the IRA definition of antisemitism and that it, it is a tool uh, to detect the various contempor contemporary forms of uh, antisemitic bias. So, um, yeah, we still have a, a long way to go, but we are still hopeful. I, I saw over the weekend also another Minister of Diaspora Affairs, who was highlighting that the most important and, and most serious form of anti-Semitism today is criticism of Israel and anti-Zionism, which is really fascinating news to those of us who are living in countries with resurgent Nazism and anti-Semitism, the, the kind that, you know, <laughs> that we all know and love. Um, the, the, sarcastically, obviously, we, we don't love it. Um, so, uh, all right. So, Giovanni, so, Alice, you mentioned UN. I think, Giovanni, you mentioned it once. Let's talk about that. The, the Biden plan is now out. The next major arena for action of the pro-IRA campaigners is the UN. Um, can you, if you, if you can update us on what's happening there, I understand from news reports that the movement of that has stalled a bit. I don't know if we know why it's stalled, but can you can you talk about the UN and what's going on there, and and what is the importance of the decision that they will see, Ira? Yeah, no, about what's going on, it's a little bit unclear to us. We saw some news article about the fact that uh, there was supposed to uh, take place a conference in Cordoba where we're supposed to release this new plan plan for fighting anti-Semitism at the UN, and these are these has uh, been postponed. Uh, we don't fully know the reason behind and it happened kind of quickly. So so uh, I cannot speculate too much on, on, on that, uh, whether it's a good or a bad thing. Uh, on According to uh, the Times of Israel, they, they postponed it because some Jewish organization were not happy with the draft. But again, we absolutely have no idea if it's true or not. So I cannot comment on that. Uh, but this is important because as we explained in the report, like uh, 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 these non-legally binding nature live upon the authority uh, 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 that that the IRA has, right? They keep repeating as been endorsed and adopted by so many states. So 
a UN adoption like would uh, 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 would definitely uh, enhance, I would say, the authority uh, of, uh, of, a, of of a definition, and it would definitely make it even more and more difficult to, to challenge. I would say uh, before uh, national uh, governments and before the EU, because then the justification is going to be well. Also, the UN adopted it. Why we shouldn't? You see. Uh, so, so I think this is the uh, reason why this can be. Uh, I wouldn't say a turning point, but could be really problematic. It is also UN finally uh, adopted, and actually the other way around, like a rejection or a non-formal uh, adoption, like what happened in the US, could be really positive because this could. Uh, put more pressure on the EU and national state, showing that even at the UN level, we have many, many doubts uh, about, about the IHRA. So that's why this is really an important uh, issue uh, right now for uh, Palestinian human rights defenders, I would, I would say, and Jewish community as well, by, of course. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense and something obviously we're going to have to keep an eye on. Um, so I, I guess let's, Alice, I want to come back to you for a final question. And actually, it relates to everything we've been talking about, but but particularly Giovanni's last answer, you know, about what is at stake here, right? What happens at the UN? What happens in states? What happens in the US? What is the importance of challenging this definition beyond fighting its suppression of Palestinian rights activism? Um, you know, this is something I think a lot of us have talked about, but I think it's still not, I think, fully appreciated. It's sort of like people don't understand. I, I, I always joke that you may not really care about Israel-Palestine, but Israel-Palestine cares about you and it's coming for your free speech. Can, can you talk about the implications of this battle for the broader cause of protecting collective and fundamental rights, such as freedom of expression, academic freedom, freedom of assembly, all that good stuff? Yes, I really love the formula you use, Lara. It's it's so true uh, because, yeah, I mean, challenging the IRA definition is about protecting fundamental rights for Palestinian rights advocates, but not only. It's it's really about collective freedoms and, and our democracy because the way uh, IRA and, and, I mean, and the examples have been designed and implemented is really an example of how you can, you know, pick a cause or, you know, tools that, that then you instrumentalize them to serve and legitimize, you know, like political goals that are actually harming human rights and humankind in general. And, and such mechanisms could be utilized in other contexts uh, than Israel-Palestine. And, and the fact is here, it's really our constitutional rights that are at stake. And, and yes, everyone should care about this uh, because where do you, you know, draw the line and, and who's next, basically? And and yeah, we think it's really about protecting the right to criticize uh, regimes that are, you know, turning towards far right, fascism, practicing forms of oppression such as apartheid, but others as well. Uh, and it's also about resisting this, yeah, general trend of conservative and, and, and anti-progressive political forces that are more and more visible in the in the public space. They have always been there, but now they are taking a space that is huge whether it's in Europe or, or the US, and, and this perpetuates racism, colonial, colonialism, uh, uh, sexism, and, and many other forms of, of repression so, and oppression. So yeah, that's also why uh, intersectionality in our struggles is, is, uh, is really important to my mind. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, because this is my opinion, it's also really, uh, uh, it's relevant also to the right of uh, uh, not being discriminated, I would say, because the reality is, 
is that uh, of course this is going to affect uh, a lot, mainly Palestinian diaspora living in Europe, but also black, brown, Muslim communities in Europe who stand in solidarity uh, with, uh, with Palestine. And, and this community already face a lot of discrimination uh, uh, and, 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 and entrenching this definition of antisemitism is going to harm also them even more. Uh, because any kind of stance of solidarity with Palestine is going to be can be is going to be publicly perceived anti-Semitism, and this is going to have heavy repercussion of them. Again, it's the, the inversion of a burden of proof. Anything is going to say is going to be perceived. Mm, okay, but uh, you know you might be anti-Semitic, so that's not going to be you. So this is going to increase discrimination. So so this is important, and then most important is not just about our rights, uh, in, in people living in Europe, but this is strongly connected with what's happening in Palestine, like. Uh, What's happening in the last, I mean, what's happening in the last 75 years is honestly awful, but what's just happening in the last two years, in the last two weeks on how many people on daily basis are, are killed. Uh, we went to Brussels just two days after uh, Mohammed Tamimi was killed, okay? And, and, and are we able to talk about this? Like, are we going to be able to keep discussing this, to say that Israel kills children are, are we going to able to say this because this is what the stake i think at the end of the story and this has huge repercussion also in palestine because silencing the debate also here is gonna is gonna make the situation even worse there and that's also why we really really uh, care about this thank you and for people listening or watching who don't know mohammed tamimi was a two-year-old palestinian who was in the car with his father who was shot and killed by an Israeli sniper, I believe, an IDF soldier. Um, at first, uh, Israel said they didn't do it, and then they said it was an accident. And and now there's a lot of reporting that has the passive voice. Um, somehow, somehow this child got his head in the way of a bullet, and there is no accountability, no repercussions for a, a child being shot and killed. Um, and that's what you're referencing. Um, so listen, we're going to end here on that very somber note. This has been a really great discussion. I strongly encourage people to read the report. Again, there'll be a link in the show notes. There'll be links to pretty much everything else we talked about. Giovanni Ellis, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your analysis. Um, thank you to our listeners and viewers for tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. As always, I remind you, make sure to check the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. And make sure you are subscribed to this podcast. To stay up to date, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And of course, you can watch the video or find the audio on our website. And the videos are all on YouTube. So with that, thank you again. And I am Lara Friedman signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thank, thank you so you much, Lara. Thank you, Lara.